0: I want to live
1: outside, live outside of all of this. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer. So you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. This is the Inside the Boards podcast. You're listening to an archived episode of the 2017 Study Smarter series. Without any delay, let's get right into the content. Today, we're doing the reproductive system. So let's get into some repro questions from the Open Osmosis platform. Our guest today is Dr. Diane Evans, who was formerly a basic science researcher at the NIH and then went on to become a doctor. She received her doctor of osteopathy at the University of Health Sciences in Kansas City and then went on to complete her OB-GYN residency at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. She is a leader in the OBGYN specialty board exam preparation space. Uh, for instance, she helped me pass my oral boards back in November and she left lectures for America's OBGYN board review course, amongst many, many other things. Her own platform, of which she is the co-founder, PassingYourOBGYNBoards.com, is especially worth checking out if you are a resident listening and facing either your written or oral board certification in the near future. Interestingly, On your, I think, your website, you mentioned you're a kinesthetic learner. Right. What does that mean for med school?
0: Well, for med school, the way that I learned, and I went to medical school, this is my second career, so I started medical school with a five-day-old infant and 32 years old. And the way I had to learn is I actually had to involve myself into understanding the discipline by visually looking at it, auditorily listening to it, and then in the anatomy lab to dissect it. So for the reproductive system, for example, it was very helpful for me to combine all three entities to actually Mm -hmm. comprehend and understand.
1: Yeah. If you say you're primarily a kinesthetic learner, I think surgically, a lot of people, you almost have to have some facility with that learning style to get procedures. I remember doing like vaginal hysterectomies. It took me about 10 times to realize, Oh, that's what's going on. <laughs> <So> <laughs> right. I was like, I don't understand. How are we turning all this inside out? And I, I think a lot of medical students, uh, especially because they're, they're getting such a small window into the cramped space of that surgical approach also feel the same way it can be somewhat bewildering i suppose i like learning via audio hence the podcast but uh, you probably need a little bit of all the learning styles visually auditory kinesthetic etc to to be successful and well rounded within medical education i suppose that's fair
0: right i can just say that Having these audio files available for medical students is really priceless because I remember buying the Gold Series, and I don't know if you remember that. They don't publish it anymore, but it was a whole audio series of different uh, areas to study for for my boards, and I really thought that was instrumental into helping me pass my steps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, well, you're on faculty, clinical faculty, correct? Correct. Do you teach medical students or just residents mostly?
0: Mostly first and second year medical students, which is really great. So I just finished grading for their final exams for their clinical practice at William Carey. So that was really interesting to work with them all year and then see the final product.
1: Yeah, well, let's get into it. We've got uh, a few high-yield questions and concepts to discuss today. We're going to focus on disorders of sexual differentiation and some of the more unique OBGYN-related concepts. So, first question is, a 20-year-old female comes to the office because she has not had her first menstrual period. Physical examination shows normal breast development, but minimal axillary and pubic hair. Pelvic examination shows that the vagina ends in a blind pouch and masses are palpable in the inguinal region which of the following karyotypes is most likely? And the answer choices here are A, 45XO, B, 46XY, C, 47XXX, D, 47XXY, or E, 47XYY. the answer choice here is B, 46XY. So why is that the case, Dr. Evans?
0: Well, one of the things about this question, and I like this question because it involves a couple of levels of understanding. The first is, you know that she obviously has sexual development, so that lets us know that she has had breast development, but you notice that there's not anything in the axillary area. And in that case, there's two things you have to think about, either androgen insensitivity syndrome or malarian agenesis. However, this passage does give a little clue saying there's no pubic hair or minimal pubic hair, and that helps differentiate malarian agenesis, meaning blind vagina and female phenotype, from AIS or androgen insensitivity in a male phenotype. And so the correct answer for this would be the 46XY, and it's due to the mutation in this androgen receptor.
1: Yeah, and I think there are definitely a number of points to remember here. A lot of students get kind of tripped up on these questions or this section of diseases even though most of them are incredibly rare, they are favorites on the step one, step two kind of level of the boards, most likely because they represent or illustrate important pathophysiologic, genetic, et cetera, kind of concepts. So with androgen insensitivity, you have a person who is genotypically male, right? Phenotypically though, they are female because the androgen receptor doesn't respond or it's mutated and doesn't respond to the normal androgens during a sexual differentiation. Just to kind of give a broad overview or heuristic of sexual differentiation, which is much more complex at a basic science level, I just want to highlight a few things. So, the embryo is in an indifferent state to start. You've got the wolfian or mesonephric ducts, which eventually can become the vas, epididymis, seminal vesicles, ejaculatory duct, essentially the internal male genitalia. And they exist in conjunction with the peromesonephric ducts or Mullerian ducts, which will develop the internal female genitalia, fallopian tubes, uterus, and upper vagina. It's often said that the default pathway is anatomically female, meaning that if nothing tells the female system to regress and the male system to develop, a female phenotype will result. And that's kind of what we, we have here because highlights. The genotypic complement will determine the development of one gonadal type or the other. So if you are an XY, during development, you will develop testes. If you're XX, the gonads will differentiate into ovaries. That Y chromosome, when it's present, the SRY region, this is important to remember for test taking, directs the gonads to become testes. And if they are testes, they will produce testosterone and androgens from Leydig cells and Mullerian inhibiting substance or anti-Mullerian hormone from the Sertoli cells. So the testosterone that's produced will kind of govern the development of internal male genital development via the Wolfian ducts. And that's kind of what you would expect to happen, except in our particular question, androgen insensitivity, you've got the androgen there. You don't have a normal receptor to get it to do its job, right? Right. So this old term testicular feminization, or now androgen insensitivity, there's no response to testosterone. So the XY genotypes there, there are testes there as the gonads. And malaria inhibiting substance does, is still made. So the uterus, fallopian tubes, and upper vagina don't form internally. But because there is no androgenic stimulation to develop the male internal and external genitalia, the phenotype is female And this includes breast development at puberty since excess testosterone gets converted to estrogens thanks to aromatase, which is an important enzyme to remember at all levels of reproductive physiology, pathophysiology for the boards. And that's kind of the essential pathophysiologic problem with androgen insensitivity. What about, I guess, another issue or a disease within this category of uh, disorders of sexual differentiation, 5-alpha reductase deficiency. These are people who have a predominantly female appearance or ambiguous genitalia at birth because they do produce malarian inhibiting substance, which causes regression of the malarian or paramezonephric system. This leads to regression of uterus, fallopian tubes, upper vagina, and they have a blind vaginal pouch. But in puberty, they have testosterone in contrast to those with androgen sensitivity, and this will lead to the development of secondary sexual characteristics, pubic hair, deepening of the voice, and elongation of the primary phallic structure or clitoromegaly. Anything else to say about that, I guess?
0: Yeah. The other thing I want to mention just about this question stem that I think is important is when you're doing your exam, you have masses that are palpable in the inguinal region. And I think one of the points we want to bring up here that's important clinically is that these testes have a chance to develop into cancer and so they need to be removed.
1: That's a good point, because you could very easily see the board's question writers presenting a similar vignette and then asking which of the following is the most likely complication um, right. of this patient's disease and mention, you know, the development of testicular cancer or, or a bunch of other potential complications. But the answer here with the cryptorchid testes would be the development of malignancy. All right, what about some of these distractors? So, A was 45XO. That describes Turner syndrome. What are some important kind of things to know about Turner syndrome?
0: Well, one of the things about Turner syndrome is that patients appear to be female. They have primary amenorrhea as well as short stature. And the other thing is coarctation of the aorta. One thing about Turner syndrome in itself is that these are patients that you will see in the reproductive endocrine clinic for um, failure to conceive. And so nowadays, with the advent of the cell-free DNA and other testing, a lot of these are being picked up uh, while the mother is still pregnant.
1: Yeah. Why do they have primary amenorrhea?
0: One of the big things is with Turner syndrome that they're 45XO. And primary amenorrhea, mainly because they have the streak gonads. So that's always a buzzword on the boards. And uh, one thing that you see on the OBGYN boards is actually pictures of streak ovaries. And so if you have streak ovaries and you don't have the estrogen, you're obviously not going to have a normal menstrual cycle.
1: So the ovaries are, when we say streak ovaries, we're talking like ovaries that don't function normally or underperform, if you will? Correct. And the result of that would be that the person with Turner syndrome has an intact pituitary and hypothalamic system, but the ovarian endocrine system is is deficient. So they will, in an endocrinologic sense, they'll have increased follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, gonadotropin releasing hormone, because those things are trying to tell the ovary to work to proceed along a normal menstrual cycle, but they just fail to do it because the material of the the ovaries itself can't produce enough of the estrogen progesterone. Is that a good kind of basic summary of what's going on yeah, uh, endocrinologically?
0: Per- yeah, perfect. So the other thing that also ties in with that question is the uh, next uh, distractor, which is 47XXX. So sometimes they call that a super female. And yeah. those females also are going to have premature ovarian failure. So they're going to have a high FSH. Yes.
1: Yeah, so that, that was C, answer choice C, 47XXX uh, karyotype, which I don't know that that's a very common first and second year medical student concept so much. Klinefelter's, which was choice D, 47XXY definitely is, because these are the patients who have sort of, uh, they're, they're male in phenotype, but with elongated extremities, uh, female distribution of uh, fat and hair, and are infertile due to dysfunction of their Leydig cells, which should be producing testosterone androgens, right? Right. There's a lot of classic pictures that kind of show that Kleinfelter phenotype. And let's see, what was the last one? Oh, yes. The 47XYY genotype. These are the double Y males. I would say when it comes to the boards at the first and second year level, the most important thing to remember here is they are found more often or there's a higher incidence of this genotype within the penal system. And these people are more likely to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. I think that pretty much covers kind of our distractors, but it might be worth mentioning what happens in that default pathway of female sexual differentiation. So in the absence of androgens produced by the testes and the malarian inhibiting substance produced by the testes, the malarian ducts will fuse in the middle and then a partition is formed between them which dissolves subsequently. But this can go wrong in a number of different senses, right? Right. Maybe walk us through some of the Mullerian anomalies as they're kind of grouped together.
0: So in female development, you have absent androgens in MIS, and the paramesonephric or malarian ducts, they fuse. And then they partition between them, dissolve. So in a didelphic uh, uterus, you have complete failure of the malarian ducts to fuse. So you have two cervixes and two vaginas. And um, that's actually a a pretty cool physical exam. I had that once in residency, and I haven't seen it since, but I had to do a a dual pap smear. Yeah, I've I've seen
1: it twice. (laughs) Actually, when I was an intern, within a month of being on, we had uh, a patient on the uh, labor and delivery ward who had a didelphus. So you can imagine as an OBGYN intern, just figuring out how to check for dilation. (laughs) was right. difficult, but then uh, add two cervixes and it got really confusing. <laughs>
0: right. So usually with a didelphic uterus, it's basically the complete failure of the malaria and ducts to fuse. So one thing I do want to point out is when you have a failure of that fusion, you're also going to have urogenital abnormalities because the GU and the uterine system forms at the same time.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
0: One thing that comes up on the OBGYM boards quite frequently is you have, if you have a septate uterus or an imperforate hymen, that's not associated with a GU abnormality. And so that's one thing I wanted to mention. The next type of, besides a didelphic uterus or basically duplication of, you have two uteruses, two cervix. You have a unicorn uterus, and this one is actually associated with the highest pregnancy wastage. Because the uterus gets to a certain size, a lot of these patients will have preterm labor. They only have one half of the uterus form, and so the other half actually regresses. If you have a septate uterus, meaning a division of little cartilage tissue between the two uterine halves because of failure of that resorption... That can be fixed surgically, and you can have a good pregnancy outcome after it. But with a septate uterus, a fusion occurs normally, but dissolution of that dividing septum fails to occur. And what happens, especially if you have an anterior placenta that develops in pregnancy, is it will hit that part, and then basically you're going to have die off and you're going to have a miscarriage. So you have recurrent miscarriages with a septate uterus. Um, And that can be fixed surgically. The bicornuate uterus is interesting as well. And the bicornuate uterus is fusion of only the distal or lower malarian duct. So you have one vagina, one cervix, but you actually have two uterine horns. And this is a favorite OBGYN boards question as well, because the only way to truly differentiate it is actually to do either an MRI or to do a concomitant hysteroscopy and a laparoscopy. So you're looking at the outside contour and you're looking at the inside contour. So simply doing a HSG won't let you know if you have a bicornia versus a septate uterus.
1: Which is a hysterosalpingogram. We shoot dye right. into the cervix and try to look at it radiographically as it comes out of the fallopian tubes and fills the uterine cavity. I think for a medical student, probably at the first, second year level, the pathology, pathophysiology is the most important part, and probably the distinction and definition between Didelphus, which is complete failure of malarian ducts to fuse, so you get essentially duplication of the system, two cervixes, two vaginas, and bicornuate, which is only partial fusion of the malarian ducts. And that is at the distal or or lower part, where you will only have one vagina, one cervix, but the upper part leads to two separate horns. Uh, I know it's hard to say that some of this might be more of like a OBGYN shelf exam kind of level content.
0: And this is the one where I would get on Google and say, Show me pictures Absolutely. of you know, show me pictures of uterine abnormalities on HSG, for yeah, example. Yeah. And if you if you Google that, you'll get all the pictures. And that's how I learned as an older student is I'd look at the picture and I'd listen. And I'd look at the picture and I'd listen. And that's part of the kinesthetic learning.
1: Okay, let's move on away from disorders of sexual differentiation and go to a thirty-two year old woman at 16 weeks estimated gestational age who comes to the office because of vaginal bleeding for the past three days. The bleeding has been accompanied by mild nausea and vomiting over the past week, and pelvic examination shows that her uterus is larger than expected for the estimated gestational age. Transvaginal ultrasound shows a snowstorm appearance and no fetal heartbeat is detected which of the following is most likely elevated in this patient's serum and the answer choices here are a alpha fetoprotein b estradiol c human chorionic gonadotropin d human placental lactogen or e lactate dehydrogenase And the correct answer here is C-HCG, human chorionic gonadotropin. So what are they pointing us towards in this question?
0: The first thing I would do when I look at this question is I, whenever I take a test, I kind of, I read the answer choices first, and then I go back and I read the question. And so then it gives me an idea of what are the possible answers and what I'm looking for. And when I'm looking through these questions here and then I go back to the stem, one thing I'm looking at is I have someone who's 16 weeks, she's having vaginal bleeding, and they give me a buzzword of the uterus is larger than expected. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing they give me, which is a huge clue, is the ultrasound shows a snowstorm appearance. And I think that's just a buzzword you're going to have to remember that's going to be associated with a molar pregnancy. Yep. And so the classic findings of a molar pregnancy is uterus larger than expected. There's no fetal heart tones in a snowstorm appearance, and usually they present with vaginal bleeding. And I think the major takeaway point is when you have a molar pregnancy, you're going to have high levels of the human chorionic gonadotrophin, or HCG, and you have symptoms also of hyperthyroidism.
1: Yeah, why does that occur?
0: Well, that's the alpha subunit, and that's basically HCG and TSH car- carry the same receptor. So you're going to have elevations in thyroid with a molar pregnancy. Now, I don't know how much detail that we're going to go into, but one of the things about a molar pregnancy is there's different types of molar. These are complete molar pregnancies or partial molar pregnancies.
1: Yeah, tell us about those.
0: Well, with a complete mole, the egg is fertilized by two sperm. And so it's dyspermy, or one sperm that duplicates and you have complete paternal complement. So you have a 46XX or 46XY. And I always remembered it as daddy's little girls. And so that helped me remember that it was the paternal duplication. And if it's complete, uh, you have a huge increase in HCG, no fetal parts because you have no normal eggs. So the big thing here is there's no fetal parts in a complete molar pregnancy. A partial mole, on the other hand, is a haploid egg. So you have one copy of X, and it's fertilized by two sperm, either X or Y, or one sperm that duplicates either X or Y. And so the genotype is going to be, there's going to be three. It's going to be 69XXY.
1: And I think that's actually the most common genotype of a partial mole, which is an important kind of fact to memorize for step one.
0: Right. I think that's very important. And the big thing with this is you're going to get something that's going to tell you that there's going to be fetal parts that are there. And I remember when I was an intern, we actually had someone who had a twin pregnancy. It was very interesting. So they had uh, a normal baby in one and a complete molar pregnancy in in the other. So it was a high-risk pregnancy that we followed. Yes, it was very interesting.
1: Did they follow it to...
0: Yep, she she delivered. She um, ended up having a C-section, made it to 32 weeks. So Mm -hmm. that was an interesting case.
1: I guess the other thing then to mention is why do we even care about molar pregnancies? Because gestational trophoblastic disease.
0: And that's a great point to bring up as well.
1: So complete moles have a higher incidence of GTD and and specifically what we're talking about is choriocarcinoma for the Probably at the medical student level. Complete mole, higher incidence of choriocarcinoma. Partial mole, not as high, but still more likely than in, as a sequela of a normal pregnancy.
0: And the other thing I want to bring out that uh, they could show something pathologically or, or give a picture perhaps on Comlex, and you're going to see a grape like structure, hydropic villi. And in a molar pregnancy, those villi are going to be abnormal and very distinct under pathology.
1: All right. Now that I look at these distractors, though, um, so the the interrogatory was which of the following is most likely elevated in this patient's serum? It should really be which of the following is most likely to be abnormally elevated in this patient's serum because alpha-fetoprotein is going to be elevated in a pregnant woman compared to a non-pregnant state. Correct. And an important thing to remember about AFP is that it will be increased in the maternal serum in those who have an open neural tube defect in their fetus or abdominal wall defect like gastroschisis. And I always think of that as alpha fetal protein spills out of a hole in the baby into mom's blood. In contrast, and this, although is less used by us in OBGYN practice, like nowadays as a, as a serum marker with the developments of more advanced things still comes up in the step one, kind of step two review literature. And that's if your alpha feta protein is decreased, in that case, you're going to be looking at a fetus who has most likely Down syndrome or trisomy 21. Those are pretty good facts to remember for step one. B was estradiol. Estradiol will also be increased if a woman is pregnant versus not. Human placental lactogen is produced only by the placenta, so also going to be increased in a pregnant woman. And this might be a little advanced for the preclinical students, but HPL is important as a hormone because it is responsible for or is implicated in the development of gestational, specifically gestational diabetes. And it's a heuristic. This isn't exactly how it works, but I I would always tell the the clinical medical students that HPL causes insulin resistance. The more placenta there is, the more of this hormone that can be produced. And that's why some women who aren't diabetic at baseline, as their placenta grows and gets big, towards the late second, early third trimester, they cross over into that threshold of too much insulin resistance and a pathophysiologic mechanism that's more like type 2 diabetes, but is only in pregnancy and therefore gestational diabetes as an entity that might be a little advanced for the first or second year medical <laughs> yeah, students so don't don't worry about that if you perfect haven't perfect
0: for the boards yeah
1: <laughs> yeah if you haven't learned about human placental lactogen in your first and second year classes just forget what i just said ldh lactate dehydrogenase is <laughs> that's uh that's also produced by the placenta and increases to a certain extent uh during pregnancy not not to a pathophysiologic extent So really, I guess in summary, that interrogatory should be which of the following is most likely abnormally elevated in this patient's serum, and it's human chorionic gonadotropin because she has a molar pregnancy. A 50-year-old woman comes to the office because of complaints of hot flashes, mood changes, and a decreased libido. A recent DEXA scan indicates a T-score of 2.7 standard deviations below the mean. Which of the following is associated with the most likely diagnosis in this patient? All right, so these are a little complicated, so I'm going to read them slow. So the first one would be A, decreased estrogen, decreased FSH, decreased LH, and decreased GNRH. B will be decreased estrogen, increased FSH... An increased LH but decreased GnRH. And C will be decreased estrogen, increased FSH, increased LH, increased GnRH. And actually, I think because these are so complex, we'll just leave those three answer choices. So A, B, or C. And the answer here is going to be C, decreased estrogen, Increased FSH and LH, and increased GNRH. So, walk us through that endocrinologic milieu.
0: You know, I hate these type of questions on the boards because they're secondary questions, right? So I look at this question, I get all excited, and that's why I read the choices first, okay? Because if I didn't look at them and I'd read this, I'd say, oh, it's menopause. And then I'm looking and going, geez, now I need to know pathophysiology. Exactly. Look at the answer choices first. You have four things that you need to differentiate. You have estrogen, FSH, LH, and GNRH. Well, I remember that FSH is going to be increased in menopause, and most likely LH. And that's because what happens is the ovarian follicles start to deplete, you're going to get a decrease in estrogen.
1: So the primary insult is failure of the ovaries to do their job and produce estrogen and produce that negative feedback on the pituitary to say, hey, you don't need that much FSH and LH around, right?
0: Right. So, this decreased estrogen is going to lead to obviously increased GnRH concentrations. Remember, GnRH is from the hypothalamus. And so, what's going to happen if it's it's going to start saying, hey, make more FSH, make more LH, let's try and produce more and stimulate the ovaries. And the side effects that happen based on this, amenorrhea, because you have decreased estrogen, you have increased FSH and LH. And so that's why the answer choice is going to be C or decreased estrogen, increased FSH, increased LH, and increase GnRH, and basically that's what leads to your symptoms of uh, not only hot flashes, vasomotor symptoms, depression, but you get dry skin, either uh, you know on the body or in the vagina. You get vaginal atrophy. You get problems with intercourse. And some say maybe testosterone might be involved, and you have a decrease in testosterone, so therefore decrease sexual desire or decreased libido. Here,
1: got it. So, well, let me ask you about this. Um, First off, that stem says a DEXA scan indicates a T-score, 2.7 standard deviations below the mean. What is that telling us?
0: Well, a DEXA scan is basically something that it looks at the hip and looks at the spine. What it does is it compares a healthy 25-year-old, same race, same sex, so a Caucasian 25-year-old to a 65- or 70-year-old Caucasian female, and it looks at the ratio of what the bone density is. So, there's different tiers of bone density to where we get concerned. So, it used to be called osteopenia. Now, it's low bone mass. So, anything that's more than one standard deviation up to minus 2.5 standard deviations is low bone mass or osteopenia. This lady falls beyond that. She falls beyond that minus 2.5, so she has osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is seen in menopause due to the decrease in estrogen, which accelerates bone loss. And that's why it's so important for vitamin D and calcium supplementation to help maintain healthy bones as well as low-impact exercise. One thing you have to remember is there's just certain things in medicine that are rote memorization yeah. and uh, the osteoporosis it greater than minus 2.5. That's a definition. So whenever you have anything that's a definition question, you need to really make sure that you're going to remember that. And that's where the first aid for the USMLE or the first aid for the Comlex really comes into to play. And that's one of the things I use to my study tools, along with question banks and audio listening, is, is really getting to know what those important points are. Because medicine is like learning out of a, a fire hydrant, right? right? You have all this information thrown at you, and you feel like you're swallowing a, a huge amount of information at the same time.
1: Absolutely. All right. Let's do... A 22-year-old woman who comes to the primary care office with a one-week history of foul-smelling vaginal discharge, she reports being sexually active with multiple partners and inconsistent condom use. On pelvic examination, her vaginal mucosa is erythematous and friable, and her cervix shows erythema with pinpoint areas of exudation. A wet mount preparation of the discharge shows numerous multi-flagellated organisms. Which of the following is the next best step in management? A, treat with metronidazole. B, reassurance. C, treat with fluconazole. D, treat with ceftriaxone. Or E, treat with nitrofurantoin.
0: So this question I think is interesting because it requires you to know something about what disease state you think it is and then what pharmacologically is going to be important for its treatment. Yep. What's the correct answer?
1: So the correct answer is metronidazole because this woman has trichomoniasis.
0: Right. And this is a favorite thing I love to show medical students under the microscope because you have these flagellated organisms and they almost jump off the screen. So they look like little kind of discs with tails and they're running all over the place. And one of my favorite questions is it's like, how do you know they're not sperm? That's a good thing too. Uh, Sperm are smaller and they have a longer flagellated tail and they're not going to be associated with this. But I think the most important thing from this stem is really what the description is. And so... This is something where there's a buzzword here, right? Yeah. So the cervix shows erythema with pinpoint areas of exudation. If they were nice, right, they would say strawberry cervix, and that's the buzzword for trichomoniasis.
1: And see, that's the problem. The boards have gotten away, both Comlex and USMLA, from using the the buzzwords. So now they right. rely so much more on descriptions, which educationally makes sense. Like, if you hear ground glass appearance to the lungs and think some sort of like fibrotic process or whatever, that's not as helpful as knowing what that actually means. Same with strawberry cervix. But it's it's really the descriptor of friable cervix with erythematous pinpoint areas of exudate.
0: The other thing that they didn't really give you in this stem itself. They didn't really describe the discharge. They do describe that it's foul smelling. The reason metronidazole is used is that is a treatment for trichomoniasis. It's also a treatment for bacterial vaginosis. One of the things to know though is if they describe the discharge as being fishy, then you would think more bacterial vaginosis and metronidazole still would be the same answer. But what they say, and they give one clue in here, they say she has inconsistent condom use and she has multiple partners. So, you know, it has to be some type of sexually transmitted disease. So, in my mind of this differential, if this person came into my office with this type of description, I'd be thinking gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomoniasis, bacterial vaginosis. Now, if they described a discharge that was white and clumpy maybe she's an uncontrolled diabetic maybe recent penicillin use for an upper respiratory infection or cephalex then i'd be thinking of treating with fluconazole and that's mostly yeast and underneath the microscope you can see that typical hyphae and sometimes on the on the boards they might actually put a picture and so instead of these answers they might have like six pictures and say which one of these would you see under the microscope and so um you know that's one thing to think about as well so treating with fluconazole is usually for vaginal candidiasis looking at ceftriaxone you know, one of the things is, and, and this is something that's not in, in this question stem, but gonorrhea now is so resistant that we have to treat not only with ceftriaxone, but what it would it? also There's... be with azithromycin as well.
1: Which used to just be the treatment for chlamydia. They would teach, give one gram of azithromycin for chlamydia, 250 mg of ceftriaxone for gonorrhea. But now right. with gonorrhea, it's you add the azithromycin as well.
0: So how would the patient, you think, present differently if this question was, if the answer was ceftriaxone? How would you reword the question?
1: Well, number one, I would say that if she just had a cervicitis, I would just probably eliminate the descriptor, cervix shows erythema with pinpoint areas of exudation, and just mention a cervical exudate. And then I would eliminate the wet mount preparation of the discharge showing numerous multiflagellated organisms. And or add something that would indicate or point me towards pelvic inflammatory disease like tenderness on pelvic exam in the adnexa or uterus or the classic one would be cervical motion tenderness.
0: Right. And I think that's an important point to mention, mostly for step two, not so much for step one. Yeah. But ceftriaxone would be a treatment for pelvic inflammatory disease or um, gonorrhea with azithromycin. And then the last choice here is treat with nitrofurotonin. And that's usually something that I treat urinary tract infections with. But the interesting thing about nitrofuritonin, and I always like to let my medical students know this, it's a bacteriostatic agent. It's not a bacteri-
1: Yep, and that's a good point. All right, let's do one more. A 30-year-old woman comes to the office because she started to notice some bloody discharge from her left breast one week ago. She does not have any discharge from her right breast. She's otherwise in good health, takes no medications, and denies any recent trauma. Physical examination does not show any discrete mass, but some serosanguinous discharge is elicited via expression there are no changes to the skin. Ultrasound of the breast shows a single nodule within one of the ducts near the nipple. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, acute mastitis, B, fibroadenoma, C, inflammatory carcinoma, D, intraductal papilloma, or E, Phyllodes tumor? The answer here is the classic D, intraductal papilloma. Bloody nipple discharge on the boards at the medical student level, probably step one and step two, intraductal papilloma. So what are these?
0: Unilateral bloody nipple discharge in a perimenopausal woman is usually intraductal papilloma, and it's basically a benign tumor of the ducts within the breast, and it either causes serous or bloody nipple discharge. And either you can have one or multiple nodules that can be noted on physical exam or seen on breast ultrasound. But because this intraductal papilloma can have atypia or can contain ductal carcinoma, it's recommended that you actually do a core needle biopsy, and it's going to be excised for definitive treatment. The main thing that when you look in this question is that you look at, and when I when I read this question, is the first thing I'm looking at is, how old is this patient? Yeah. right cuz if you gave me a 70 year old i'd be thinking breast cancer
1: yeah good point right? yep
0: but she's 30 so most young people are going to have benign conditions and so you know that there's a bloody discharge now one thing they can do um, patrick that they can change this is they could say it's there's a guaiac positive discharge and not even give you the word bloody uh, so
1: so just like a microscopic red blood cells
0: okay so Don't laugh at me. Okay, promise no one's going to laugh at me. When I took my step one, I didn't know what guaiac was, and I don't there was know like thirty I questions. <laughs> there was thirty questions on guaiac, and I remember coming out the boards and go, guys, what's guaiac? And they were like, Diane, you're such an idiot. That means bloody. Yeah. But I wanted to point that out for all our listeners that make sure you know what guaiac means.
1: If I, I wish I could remember all the examples like that that I have. My favorite is about six months into intern year, I remember having this weird epiphany that is just embarrassing now, and that was that when I do a cervical exam, I should be measuring from the internal os of the cervix. I was like six months into residency before I was like, oh, wait a minute. Have I been... Um, yeah, I may have just been reporting the external os because they can be kind <laughs> of a funnel or different. Um, right. Which... Uh, helped explain, maybe it wasn't six months, but it was definitely like longer than it should have been. Like I should have finished my OBGYN rotation as a medical student with that firmly in place. But we all have our (laughs) deficiencies. I figured it out.
0: Don't feel bad. I mean, last week, I went to go check a a lady who was preterm labor. And when I first checked her, I thought she was six centimeters. And I'm like, oh my Uh gosh, she's (laughs) She's six. And I said, well, hang on a second. That's the external Oz. And you have to go a little bit further back. And she was only two centimeters on the internal Oz. But I made sure the nurse know that. I said, when you go in and you check her, you're going to think she's six (laughs) centimeters and she's really not. But you've gotten those calls, I'm sure, like I have. Oh, this person's (laughs) completely dilated and the cervix is very effaced, meaning there's no cervix left, but she's not completely dilated. The cervix is way posterior and she's actually one centimeter.
1: You guys don't have to worry about that though, not, no, not no. for a little bit. <laughs>
0: so one of the things I like about this question here is the answer choices. And let's go over those for a little bit. Acute mastitis. Yeah. So acute mastitis, I think the answer would be acute mastitis if I gave a vignette of a breastfeeding female associated with erythema over the breast in a hard fluctuant area. I'd be thinking of a breast abscess. And then that's usually treated with dicloxacillin or bactrim. A fibroadenoma, I would say that this is a person that has pain, breast pain or myalgias, and you notice a a multiple discrete lumpiness to the breast bilaterally. Fibroadenomas are the most common pathology on biopsy of a young woman, and they're benign inflammatory carcinoma, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, that would be choice C, but that would be the 70-year-old. So if I think that this person was 70 year old and she had a bloody nipple discharge, I would also change it to there's uh, gross cellulitis over the breast and maybe a pud orange change. And that's another buzzword where you have like puckering of the breast tissue yeah like it, dimpling so actually,
1: like an orange skin peau orange.
0: it looks exactly like an orange so have you ever
1: seen that because that's i know one of our feared kind of things is to see somebody with an inflammatory breast car- carcinoma because they're rapidly progressive right
0: Right. I had the honor of being a public health service scholar. And so they paid for medical school. And one of the best things I ever did with my career, because I went out and I serviced the Indian health services in, uh, Tuba City as well as in uh, Browning, Montana. And unfortunately, in these areas, you see a lot of pathology. So I actually got pretty good at, at, um, doing breast exams and seeing breast cancer, which is, uh, seems to be a little bit more prevalent in this population, but definitely looking at the skin and noticing a dimpling or a retraction. And you're looking for a nodule that's going to be in the upper outer quadrant. And I also do my clavicular and my axillary node palpation when I'm doing those. But you will notice an inverted nipple. You can notice some bloody nipple discharge and some erythema. It's a very classic appearance. And then phylloides tumor. I I get this um, sometimes where you have someone come in, usually they're a young female, and they have one breast that's bigger than the other. And so um, a phylloides tumor, it's a rare benign breast uh, lesion. They do excise them because it is associated with some malignant potential, but they're large multinodular tumors and the skin is actually really stressed. So you might have an A cup on one side and a D cup on the other. So it's very exaggerated.
1: You know, I've never seen that, but everyone always thinks come to the OBGYN for breast stuff, right? But I don't i don't know i i don't like breast disease
0: well it's you know i'm i'm fortunate i have a lot of people i can refer to uh, our general surgeons um do that and i actually have one of one of my residents uh that i um one of my junior residents, actually that I trained with, did a breast fellowship, and and so she's an OB/GYN, but she subspecializes in breast. Such I specialize like you do in general ob but she loves breast. For me, I'll diagnose it and then I have to send it on.
1: <laughs> oh, is that just like a non-accredited fellowship in in breast disease? Right. To do like core needle biopsies and FNAs right. and stuff? Interesting.
0: But one thing, too, that I can um, also mention is, um, in terms of breast disease, is also talking a little bit about, you know, nipple discharge. So a bloody nipple discharge, right, would be an interductal papilloma or a carcinoma based on age. What about a green nipple discharge? Say this vignette said that there was a green nipple discharge. What would the answer choice be then?
1: Um, I would think... Uh...
0: Like a ductal lactasia or something, right? So... Yeah, so
1: that's told you. That's, I hated breasts.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. So anyway, ductal ectasia is like a green, sticky discharge, and everyone gets all concerned about that. But um, that's actually a benign finding as well. And you can actually have that more in the menopausal female. The other thing that you can have too is you can have galactoria from the breast right?
1: That's a good point. Yep.
0: Galacteria, I don't know if that's more like a step two, but then you're thinking of mostly... No,
1: you know, I think they would. Um, a pituitary adenoma is definitely a fair game for step one, but mostly probably in relation to either hypothyroidism producing Excess TRH, which uh, stimulates the production of prolactin and/or autonomous production of prolactin by an adenoma. Yeah, I think that's fair game, though.
0: Yeah. So, and then one thing with with that, if you have someone who has, you know, bilateral nipple discharge and it's milky, remember the first thing to do is to rule out pregnancy, right? Because when you're pregnant, you can have galactoria. The next thing is, is are they on any psychotropic medications? So sometimes antipsychotics will produce that. Also excessive nipple stimulation or sometimes even something like a chest wall disease like herpes zoster can cause galacteria. And then the big thing is, is to look at the prolactin level and based on that determines if you have that and visual symptoms, if you're going to do an MRI. And then once you get the MRI, it's really how big that micro or macro adenoma is. Macro adenoma will go through surgery, where micro adenoma, then you're talking about medical treatment with something like bromocryptine.
1: Yeah, I guess that's important because at least medication side effect wise, if you have a dopamine antagonist, as in the antipsychotics, that will reduce the amount of Prolactin inhibiting hormone, which is also named for dopamine, and therefore treating microadenomas is via a dopamine D two agonist, cabergoline or
0: bromocriptine.
1: Bromocriptine, yes. yeah. Yeah,
0: I saw you closing your eyes there. It's it's nice because I can see you on video. So I'm like, wow, he remembers all this stuff. I'm so proud of him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, vaguely, I, I've <laughs> somewhat. I sometimes have to reach pretty deep into the recesses of my mind. Well, thank you for your time. I don't want to take any more of it. This has been great. It's nice to be able to have a conversation with somebody from the same specialty. I'm sure we could probably go on a lot a lot right. longer, but we'll have to have you back on in the summer when we can discuss more shelf exam or step 2 level content because that that's a little more I think exciting for us than uh going back to step 1. Not not that I don't love it, but it's just uh it's it's too post-traumatic to do for a long period of time. <laughs>
0: well, I appreciate you having me on there today and helping others to learn a little bit more about this difficult topic. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Absolutely. Don't forget to share the Study Smarter series on social media. Just share an episode, tag at boards insider on Twitter or Inside the Boards on Facebook or Instagram. Just wanted to thank Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Live Outside off The Spark, their new album about which Rao said, What I was trying to do with this album in marrying the personal and the political is to ensure that human vulnerability is laid bare and to not be afraid to speak about emotions. Plus, this album is a little lighter than what you heard previously with the song Anesthetist. At any rate, check out entershikari.com.